listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. Y'all can take a seat. So I'd like to begin today. I want you guys to think about a time where you have been trying to make the cut. So maybe you auditioned for the role in a school play or you had tried out for a team, or you went out for a job interview, or you were waiting on that college acceptance letter, what did it feel like as you were waiting to hear how you did? What was going on inside of you as you were wondering, was I the person who would be chosen for this? I know for me, one of those formative moments, in high school I played saxophone in jazz band, and you're probably looking at me like, yeah, you sure did. And uh, we had this annual solo and ensemble competition. And at solo and ensemble, you'd go in privately to play for a panel of judges, but then they would publicly post your score at the front of the school on a giant board with everyone's names listed. So there was an element not just of finding out how did I do before these people, but there was an element of everyone else will associate me with this score that's posted for all to see. And what's going on in Matthew's calling here is an element of that. There's an element of who will be called to follow after Jesus. And there's also this public acknowledgement of I'm counting you as worthy to be one of my followers. And so in order for us to understand how Matthew is probably feeling in this moment, I want to take a moment to orient us to how Matthew has arranged his gospel. So Matthew, he structures his gospel in a tell and show approach as opposed to show and tell. He tells us about the ministry of Jesus, and then Jesus shows it to us in action. So chapter 4, Jesus has kind of this title for his public ministry. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn from how you've been living, because I'm going to offer you a new way, a better way, a way in which the presence of God will come to manifestly dwell here on earth as it is in heaven. And from that proclamation, Jesus moves immediately into the Sermon on the Mount, which we're probably familiar with. It's the largest single block of Jesus' teaching, and in it, he describes what our participation in the kingdom will look like, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, where we're offering up this ethical standard of offering our cheek to those who wrong us. When, When we're hit on one, we offer up the other, instead of asking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And coming out of that, Jesus begins to inaugurate the kingdom through a series of miracles. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. And we get kind of an interlude here in chapter 9. 
where we're taking a break from all that Jesus has done to begin his kingdom, and he's calling people to himself. He's calling followers after himself. And in the course of the narrative, we are meant to be asking the question, who will Jesus invite after him? Who are we expecting it to be? Are we expecting people who are good, who by their reputation will boost Jesus' credibility in the eyes of other people? Or maybe we're expecting, expecting it to be the powerful, people who can have an impact for the kingdom, or those who are really theologically astute. That way they might explain the theology of the kingdom to other people. And if enlisting those things, you're thinking to yourself, I don't fit in any of those categories, neither does our main character today, Matthew. So chapter 9, verse 9, reads, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. The first thing that jumps out to me about this text is this is not a super descriptive calling. Because Matthew is the author of our gospel, and Matthew is writing about his own story. If we had selected Matthew for a fifth Sunday at Cornerstone telling his testimony, there would have been about 14 minutes of dead time to fill. He's not giving us any details. And this is actually a choice that Matthew is making in constructing his own narrative. He is trying to give us enough room in his account of his calling that we can read ourselves into it. That we can think about, what was this like for me when Jesus called me to follow after him? So Matthew, he's giving us a bare-bones account because he wants us this morning to ask, how is Matthew's calling instructive for what it means to follow Jesus in my ongoing life in Christ? And the one detail he does give us is he identifies himself as a tax collector, which a tax collector here, we shouldn't be thinking CPA or IRS auditor. Tax collector is somebody that has a clearly morally negative connotation. This is a job that Matthew's parents would be embarrassed to tell other people their son has. Like, what does your son do? Uh, he's in finance, you know? <laughs> That's the kind of thing that would be going on here because a tax collector is somebody who has purchased from Rome the rights to collect taxes of Israelite citizens. They have become a traitor to their own people in order to personally enrich themselves. They've said, I want to enlist on the side of the bad guys so that I can become wealthy. That's the only descriptor that we get of Matthew. And what Matthew is trying to put before us is that this is a surprising calling. We don't expect a tax collector to be somebody who Jesus would enlist to follow after him, to be somebody that he would want to be associated with. And the narrative is even more confusing because we don't see any reason that Jesus chooses to call this tax collector because maybe we could compare it to another moment in which Jesus calls a tax collector. You guys probably know the one that I'm talking about, a wee little man named Zacchaeus who climbs a tree in order to get a better look at Jesus. At least in that case, we see, okay, Zacchaeus must have been interested in the ministry of Jesus if he's willing to climb up a tree, but here we appear to have an average heighted tax collector who Jesus is calling after him. And it begs the question, why? Why him? Why somebody who has a morally negative connotation who appears to have done nothing being selected out of all these people? And that's Matthew's point, is he hasn't done a thing. He hasn't done anything to merit the calling that Jesus is extending to him. And neither did you. And neither do I. Matthew begins from a place of us resting in and recognizing our calling in God is a response. The entire Christian life is lived as a response to the invitation that is extended in Jesus. You've done nothing to qualify yourself, and from that you can rest. 
That means your entire ongoing participation in following Jesus was not something that is contingent upon something you did in the past or something you're continuing to do. It was done without your merit. And you can rest. You can operate from a position of knowing that no matter what has gone on in your sin against God or your sin against others, which may be real, which may be legitimate. Matthew had sinned against other people. It was not in consideration when he was calling. So Cornerstone, this morning, the first thing I want you to hear is that you need to rehearse your calling to yourself. The fact that you were called without qualification. That is good news for us as we continue after Jesus. And if it's surprising that Jesus begins in this place of calling Matthew, somebody who we wouldn't expect, perhaps what's even more surprising is how Matthew responds. Because again, we have a very low view of tax collectors for the initial audience. So verse 9 closes by saying, follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed Jesus. This is not the response we would expect from a tax collector. What we would expect is some sort of back-and-forth dialogue between Jesus and Matthew, where he's saying something like, who, me? Are you sure? Or Jesus says, you can come after me after you give away all the money that you've wrongfully collected. But that's not what we see happen. Matthew immediately responds. And if Matthew wanted us to see the surprising nature of his calling, the fact that he has been selected in spite of who he is, he also wants us to understand anyone is capable of repentance. Anyone can follow after Jesus. This central claim that Jesus is making, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from the way you've been living because I'm offering you a new way, a better way, is resonating in Matthew. Matthew is somebody who has tried a different way of satisfying himself. He's purchased this right in order to enrich himself at the expense of others, and he has found it wanting. He's found it lacking. And so when Jesus says, come after me, he says, yes, I want something different. I want something new. I want your kingdom. And that can be true of anyone. No matter their status, we can find that what we have been living in is bankrupt and that we want something else. Maybe that's true in your own story. You found that the way that you were living was not satisfying, and so you followed after Jesus. But also here in this story is a warning, is a hint of, which we'll come to see towards the end with the Pharisees, this is true for others too. There are others who, like Matthew's original readers, would have thought about these tax collectors and said, you have no business following. Who are those people for you? Who might you think, there's no way they could repent? Look at who they are. Look at what they've done. And Matthew, he's trying to upend our assumptions here. Anyone can respond to the call of Jesus because Jesus is calling all kinds of people to himself. Anyone can respond in repentance. And again, I want you to see Matthew is intentionally sparse here. We don't get his inner monologue. We don't get to hear about what's going on inside of him, which he could have provided because he wants us to imitate him. He wants us to engage in repentance. And one thing that's key for understanding our reading of Matthew's calling is this is not just meant to be instructive about the moment of our conversion. It's meant to be an ongoing instruction for our life of participating in Christ. Because when we choose to follow after Jesus, there is an initial moment of follow me, of I'm going to leave behind the tax booth that I was in in order that I might follow after Jesus in the life he's calling me to. But that continues to be the call on our life every day. 
We continue to walk away from something in order that we might walk after something. And when I think of repentance, that is always a really helpful thing for me to keep in mind. It's a twin measure of I'm going to deny something in order that I might say yes to something else. I'm going to say no to something so that I can embrace something. And I want to pause here for a second because we can, in resting in our unqualified calling in Christ, get to this place where repentance is always a backwards-looking thing, where I can look and say, I did repent that one point in time. I did choose to follow Jesus, and that's good, but we must continue to repent. We must continue to walk away from things that we might walk after Jesus. And I want to ask you, is there something that the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart right now as I say that? that you may have something you need to repent of, that you need to walk away from in order that you might embrace Jesus. And one thing that I think is very instructive for us in the calling of Matthew is that he probably felt a great weight of hypocrisy. He was publicly known as a tax collector and probably something that's going on inside of him is wondering how will other people think of me responding to the call of Jesus because they know who I am, and they know what I've done, and yet Matthew does not let that spiritual pride keep him from coming forward to confess his need. And so if you have something the Spirit is laying on your heart, of something that you need to say no to so that you can say yes to Jesus, I would implore you, don't let spiritual pride, this fear of what will others think of me if I confess my need, keep you from coming to him. None of us qualify ourselves. So if you have something, don't let a fear of, well, if I confess this to a brother or a sister, if I confess this to a staff member, stop you from walking in the light. So that may be some of us. Maybe the Spirit is laying something on your heart. But for others of us in this room, I just want to issue a more general exhortation that all of us have things that we are currently embracing that are hindering our ability to follow after Jesus. And if there's not a specific thing that the Spirit is calling to your attention that you ought to repent of, I wonder, is there a rhythm or a habit that you can say no to in order that you might say yes to a fuller life in Christ? So maybe you've heard it said around Cornerstone before, there's a practice that some of us try to engage in of saying no to screens when we wake up, that we might say yes to an hour of time in the Word. Maybe not a full hour, an hour before screens. That's a little bit more realistic for us. Can we say no to something that we might say yes to something? And maybe for you that means doing exactly that. Don't hit your phone for the first hour of your day in order that you might spend some time with the Lord. Or maybe it means saying no to some of the media you consume in order that you might have face-to-face conversations with other people around you. But what might God be asking you to say no to that you might say yes to? So we see so far in Matthew's calling, it's surprising that he's called, It's surprising that he responds, and the surprise continues because we next find Jesus at dinner with sinners and tax collectors. So verse 10 reads, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So maybe what we're expecting in the aftermath of Matthew agreeing is some sort of grand public call to repentance. Pay back what you've owed. Or go restore fortunes to people. But instead what we see is Jesus is resting at a meal with these people. It's not the thing that we would expect in the course of the narrative. And as a quick aside here, Matthew, he describes Jesus as seated at the table with tax collectors, who we've already said do not have a positive connotation, and sinners. And sinners, as Matthew is using it here, it's kind of a catch-all term 
for people who the Pharisees view as being unworthy of following after God because they don't pursue the law. They're people who are not morally upright. The way that Jesus is going about conducting his ministry in this moment is backwards. If we were coaching Jesus from a 21st century American perspective, what we would be telling him to do is, okay, you've called Matthew, grab a quick snack and move on to the next person who needs to be called, right? We'd want him to be efficient. We'd want him to be fast. And instead, what we see him doing is slowing down and sharing a meal, which is backwards. It doesn't make sense. So I have a quick story for y'all. I was in a fraternity in college. I know, again, saxophone fraternity, it's an interesting pairing. I was actually president of my fraternity in college, uh, but it was a Christian fraternity, so kind of a fake fraternity. And we hosted a party my senior year, and I was in charge of, like, booking the band to come out for this, travel arrangements, picking them up at the airport, that whole thing. And after they played their show, they pulled me aside and they said, hey, where's the after party? Sorry, we're a Christian fraternity. We don't do after parties, guys. And one of them said to me, well, you know God is outside of time, right? Yeah? I said, Great. So for God, the party never stops. So I'm going to need you to find me an after party. <laughs> to which it was kind of like checkmate. I don't know what you want me to say to that other than you theologically debated with me. So we ended up throwing a little after party for these guys. And it was so fun. They, it, they hung out with us. We learned about what it was like to work in the music industry. They asked us questions about ourselves, And it changed the whole experience. It went from being an evening of contracted labor that these people were obligated to perform into friendship, into fellowship. And what we see in the aftermath of the calling of Matthew is that Matthew is not a job to Jesus. He's not an item on his heavenly to-do list that he needs to move on to the next person. He wants to spend unhurried time in his presence. And Cornerstone, I want you to hear, you are not a job to Jesus. You are not something that he must do, that he's obligated to do, that he's inconvenienced to do. You are someone that he wants to have fellowship with, that he's inviting to sit at the table with him. Because Jesus knows that the way we will become followers of him is not by learning a bunch of rules, it's by sitting at the table in unhurried time and enjoying his presence. That's what Matthew is being invited into. As a new disciple, Jesus is saying, come around the table with me. This is where you will learn what it is to follow after me. And the same invitation is true for you. So if you've responded to the call of Jesus, I want to remind you, abide in him. Sit at the table with him. Dwell with him. Spend time with him. And as a quick aside here, something that would be worth your time is knowing where you experience abiding with God. Maybe that's time in nature. Maybe that's time singing worship music. Maybe it's time in solitude or in scripture or reading a book. It would be worth knowing that because that is where the Christian life is lived, is in abiding in Jesus. So, so far we've seen Matthew, he's surprisingly called, and he surprisingly responds. And then in great surprise, Jesus wants to be with Matthew. He's not just a job for him. And Matthew could have closed his account there, could have ended on a high note. Jesus sat down to a meal with me, aren't I great? But that's not where Matthew finishes telling us his story because there's a warning he wants to issue to us through the Pharisees. So the Pharisees who are seeing this whole thing play out, verse 11 says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
So the Pharisees here are scandalized by seeing Jesus dignify these people with his presence over a meal. And there's some social significance to sharing a meal that may fall flat for us. It's not totally foreign, but it's probably heightened in Jesus' culture. So when you sit down for a meal with somebody else, sitting across from the table from them, you're communicating to them, you are worthy of my time. You are worthy of my presence and attention. You matter. And that's what Jesus is communicating to the people seated at the table. But there's also a social significance in Jesus sitting down to a meal with these people. Because what Jesus is doing in sitting down to a meal is he's sharing his status with them. He's conferring upon them the status of a dignified teacher to people who do not deserve it. And this is why we see the disciples spending so much time of Jesus' ministry fighting around seating arrangements, right? Who gets to sit where at the table? Who's first? Who's last? Who's at whose right hand? This is because they want to be as close, as proximate to Jesus as possible because that is a declaration from Jesus about who in his eyes has the greatest worth. And so for the Pharisees to criticize Jesus for sitting down to a meal with tax collectors and sinners is to say, you are dignifying people who are lawbreakers, who don't care about following this moral code. And in the mind of the Pharisees, two things are true. One is that God has given us the law in order that we might approach him. And two is if we try hard enough at pursuing that law, we can do it on our own. And so this violates what the Pharisees understand the pursuit of God to be. The first thing the Pharisees are misunderstanding in the ministry of Jesus is Jesus begins his call to follow with a call to repent. So it's not like this whole scene began with Jesus going up to Matthew and saying to him, hey man, love that tax collector thing you're doing. You want to get dinner later? No, he says, follow me, implicit in which is leave behind the life that you're in in order that you might come after me. So some of this is the Pharisees' inability to conceive of a new identity which can come in Christ. But beyond that, we see another exchange happen in verse 12. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And the Pharisees would probably agree with this pronouncement. You're right, these people are sick. They do need help. They do need healing. But in their quickness to judge the people who are seated at the table with Jesus, they miss their own sin. They miss their own complicity. They see this illness and they think if they just worked a little bit harder, if they worked a little harder at obeying the law, they would be able to cure themselves. And what the Pharisees are misunderstanding is this diagnosis is fatal. It's not a band-aid that you can put on at home. It's something that you need the care of a physician for. And in misunderstanding the diagnosis that it's fatal, they misunderstand the cure. They cannot manufacture what they need in and of themselves. They need something beyond themselves. And this is how God calls people to himself. What we see in Matthew's calling is instructive for our life in Christ. So if I can rewind our understanding a little bit to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, these series, series of paradoxical sayings. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which sounds a little bit odd. The poor ones are the blessed ones. And he continues on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 
bad thing after bad thing after bad thing, what is Jesus setting up for us in the Beatitudes? Well, he's setting up what we experience when we come to Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The blessed ones are those who realize their spiritually impoverished state. Who, like Matthew, were chasing the wealth of the world and found that it came up bankrupt and they wanted something more. So they're poor. And in their poverty, they mourn their condition. And in the midst of their mourning of saying, how will I become better? Who will resolve the sickness in me? It produces a meekness in them. A meekness that is willing to say, no matter the social costs, no matter if other people think I'm a hypocrite, if I'm called, I will follow. Which ultimately manifests itself in the life of Matthew is those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness will be satisfied in Jesus. And the Pharisees, they miss the fact that they need to be hungering and thirsting for a righteousness which they cannot produce on their own. They haven't yet seen the bankruptcy of their spiritual state. And this is Matthew's call and this is our call. We are the poor in spirit who in our hunger and thirst find satisfaction in Jesus. And Jesus, he continues on. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is an interesting use. He's quoting Hosea here. So interesting use of mercy. Usually when we see an Old Testament prophet use mercy, they're focused on our care for the poor. How do we perform acts of charity for those who need it? And instead, what we see is Jesus is using this line from Hosea as saying, those who require mercy are the people who we would think are incapable of repentance. Those are the people who I expect drawing to this table. So to the Pharisees, he's saying, it should not be a surprise that the sick are gathered at the table because if it's the sick who need a doctor, we should expect to find plenty of patients in the waiting room, right? We shouldn't be the only ones. And Matthew's warning through the Pharisees is that Jesus' followers will be made up of others who, like us, were unworthy to be called. And his warning through the Pharisees as he closes the story of his own calling is don't adopt a posture of the Pharisees which would say there are those who are beyond repentance. Because we have these people, right? And it it might be different for everybody in this room, but there may be people who we think of, people who maybe are of a certain sexual orientation or of a certain political ideology or who have committed a certain sin in their past, who we would think they're incapable of following Christ, and Matthew wants to dismantle any understanding that would lead us in that direction. All are welcome at the table because all are unqualified in their calling. One thought that I had here as I was thinking about this, of us needing to make room at the table, Cornerstone is a place of rich relationships. When I look around this room, I see family networks that extend generations. I see friendships that span decades. And I don't know if y'all have seen this. The U.S. Surgeon General has actually issued a public health warning on chronic loneliness in the United States. So the effects of chronic loneliness in the United States are as harmful on health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And I I don't have to explain it in depth to you. You can imagine how someone being chronically alone puts them in a place where they are vulnerable. And I have to wonder for a church like us of our size with our connections, the people around us, who is God calling for us to allow a seat at the table? How will we remember our calling and how will that be instructive for us making room for others who are similarly being called? Because again, Jesus is calling all kinds of people. 
So friends, in closing, I want you to hear those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are given a seat at the table in Jesus. So no matter where you have found yourself, no matter where you find yourself, the call is available to you and it continues to be available to you as you walk in repentance and find Jesus doesn't view you as a job. He wants time with you. Let's pray. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.